0: It looks like the crew has been saved and will remain in Columbus under new ownership. I am genuinely happy for all the crew fans. This is the ideal outcome. When the book of American soccer is written, there should and will be a chapter on the Save the Crew story. This wonderful group of crew fans established and organized a grassroots movement that never gave up and never accepted their lot. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lalas, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue-colored glasses. As you heard, we'll be talking about the saving of the Columbus crew. We'll also have our Mossy Makes the Case segment. We'll be answering your questions in our Ask Alexi segment and so much more. But first, as always, joining me, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you this Monday morning?
1: I am good. Uh, One of the perks of working for Fox Sports and getting to cover these international events is you get a lot of what the kids refer to as swag. Mm. And today, in honor of the U.S. Women's National Team clinching a World Cup berth, I'm wearing my 2015 Women's World Cup fleece. And underneath, I don't know if you can see, but I have... A 2015 Women's World Cup T-shirt. Wow! So I am dressed for the occasion.
0: Uh, you are you are celebrating something. We will talk about uh, the qualification of the U.S. Women uh, for. France next summer. Congratulations to them. We'll talk about that more later in the pod. I was on the road this past week. I was in Florida for the uh, U.S. game, and then I was in Texas for the women's game, uh, the U.S. men's game in Florida and the U.S. women's game in, uh, in Texas. And a lo- I-, I met a lot of people, Mossy. This is happening to, m- to me more and more, that listen to the pod, and they want, me to, s- they want to send their best to you. They also want to send messages. You know, one guy was, he wanted you to understand that he does care about the jerseys that you wear on the pod. And so you you seem to, he seemed to think that maybe people out there don't care. So they care. They are watching. I'm not sure they're listening, all of them, but at least they're watching, which is a good, which is a good thing.
1: On the topic of your trip to Tampa, I saw an Instagram photo of some uh, fancy steak dinner at a famous restaurant. We went to a
0: place called Burns Steakhouse, for those that have ever been down there, or even maybe that haven't been down there. It's a very famous steakhouse. Rob Stone is of the Tampa area. He's considered himself from from Tampa, and he lived there for many, many years. And he took us out. Wonderful dinner. It's this three-and-a-half-hour, just incredibly decadent, wonderfully decadent steaks. And then they have this incredible wine cellar and this incredible dessert floor that's above the restaurant. So uh, it was very long, but it was also very, very good. We had a a really good time. Did you do anything this weekend exciting, interesting?
1: Yeah, actually, I had a a Shabbat dinner on Friday night. That was lovely. Oh, nice. Uh, And then Saturday evening, got together with some college buddies, watched Michigan spank Wisconsin. and uh, I was in a
0: bar also watching that game uh, this Saturday with many Michigan people, including uh, one of our producers, Shaw Shaw Brown, Brown, who I know listens to the pod, and he was going crazy about your Michigan Wolverines, right? They're called the Wolverines. Correct. The Wolverines of Michigan beating up on these poor little uh, badgers from Wisconsin. And uh, I was I, I was saying that they should extend your coach John Harbaugh's job j- and everything. like Jim that. Harbaugh. There is is a John oh, Harbaugh. Oh, really? Jim Harbaugh. Uh, John Harbaugh. Yeah, his brother is. Well, there's also a Harbaugh perfect. there in Michigan um, that uh, evidently just needs to be tenured for the for, well, uh, for the rest of life.
1: Big one. You're only as good as your next game. Big one this upcoming weekend at Michigan State. A uh, big local derby.
0: It's a local derby. Oh, wonderful! Yes. Uh, I, I hope you guys can pull that off. The Wolverines there. Shaw was te- was telling me that he's so proud of his school. Are you in the same uh, in the same vein, proud of your uh, Michigan Wolverines? In that he said it's not about winning in the football program. It's about the incredible graduation rate that he has of his of his players. Yeah, Shaw he really, has told you know, me hung his hat on that.
1: Yeah, he's told me he would trade one or two less wins a year. To run a program the right way and graduate all your players. Wow! And I would not make that swap. Give me those extra wins. (laughs) That is some.
0: That is some uh, heavy duty elitism. I mean, that's like. uh, It's not like you have a bunch of Rhodes Scholars on your uh, on your offensive line there or anything like that, right? I mean, they, they just they're graduating. Is that what's happening? And you're gonna. Yeah, Shaw, I
1: think, exaggerates a little bit this whole thing, but. Fair enough.
0: All right, enough about the Michigan Wolverines football team. Uh, we got so much to talk about, so much good stuff to talk about, so much interesting stuff to talk about. Ready to light this candle? Yep. All right, here we go. Alexi Lawless' State of the Union. Yes, it's time for my State of the Union, where I look at a part of the game from an American perspective, and it goes a little something like this. It's over. The long, ugly, and sad saga of the Columbus crew move is over, and it looks like the crew has been saved and will remain in Columbus under new ownership. I am genuinely happy for all the Crew fans, and fans of the Crew fans. The Save the Crew movement was vital in keeping the story on the front burner and forcing MLS to leave no stone unturned. It was a bad look for the league from the start, and MLS knew it. But all's well that ends well, and this is the ideal outcome. An absentee owner in Anthony Precourt, who has always had his eye on greener pastures in Austin, gets his move to what is admittedly a very attractive market for MLS, And a local deep-pocketed NFL owner in the form of Cleveland Browns owner Jimmy Haslam purchases the crew and hopefully injects much-needed resources, energy, and direction into the team. But Haslam isn't doing this out of the goodness of his heart or some altruistic or charitable responsibility to the state of Ohio. Like any good businessman, he sees an opportunity, and he's taking it, just like Anthony Precourt did. When the book of American soccer is written, there should and will be a chapter on the Save the Crew story. This wonderful group of crew fans established and organized a grassroots movement that never gave up and never accepted their lot. They fought for their team, their city, and their sport, and they did it with honor. They fought the good fight, and they won. In doing so, they showed what loyalty, fandom, and community is and can be. At a time in the U.S. when we are often focused on what is wrong and bad about the game, Save the Crew represents everything that is right and good. All right, Mossy, rejoice. Ring the bells. Our uh, long-suffering Columbus crew has been saved. What say you? Well,
1: let's address the elephant in the room. Uh, A few weeks ago, you did a State of the Union on this topic, and a lot of people thought you came off very callous and dismissive Mm -hmm. of the Save the Crew movement. This is a business, your customers, and... just have to accept that this is the way things go. And so a lot of Save the Crew folk on Twitter don't want to hear your congratulations Mm -hmm. right now. Uh, What would you say to those people?
0: Well, first off, I have the microphone. When they have the microphone, they can say whatever they want. So they're (laughs) going to hear exactly whatever the hell I want to talk about. Number two, it takes, uh, to quote Fletch, it takes a big man to admit when he's wrong. I am not a big man. I will say this, though. I was wrong in that I certainly didn't expect an investor and a local investor to swoop in, and certainly not this soon. And I am happy to be wrong. But you know who did expect it? As I mentioned in the State of the Union, the folks from Save the Crew. And I I truly believe that without them, as I said, putting this day in and day out on the front burner, and to a certain extent shaming MLS, I'm not sure that this this gets done. The other thing that I had said was, if this is such a wonderful market— Um, as they, they certainly making it out to be, and I'm on the outside, so I don't know, but somebody was going to recognize the opportunity and swoop in and do that. I didn't think it was going to come this early. Now, it still remains to be seen, and we should be very, very clear, this is not a done deal. MLS was very, very clear about that, but this is certainly headed in the right direction. How it all shapes out from a PR standpoint is going to be interesting in that the new team in Columbus may be an expansion team, ultimately really doesn't matter. The fact that there's a potential and a very good potential that the Columbus crew is going to stay in Columbus, that is a good thing. It's a good thing for Columbus. It's a good thing for the state of Ohio. It's also a good thing for, uh, for soccer. If in the past uh, Columbus crew fans have felt that I have been less than supportive or callous to their efforts— Uh, I will apologize if that is what they feel uh, that, that I was saying. Certainly in no way did I intend to be callous to their efforts. As a matter of fact, what I was saying was I thought that it was cruel and unusual what they were going through. I did not want them to go through more pain. But ultimately, they fought for their team, and as I said, they fought a good fight, and the good fight that they fought resulted in this happening. I truly believe that without them, this doesn't get done. And we can go on. And I know, look, there's plenty of people where this was part of their fiber, this was part of their heart, but there's a lot of people that just didn't want to hear about the Save the Crew uh, thing anymore. I'm glad that we don't have to, but this will always be a story, and a good story, a wonderful story, and a story that should be told often and for a long time.
1: I think it's a testament to how much the people in Columbus wanted to keep their team, that they're excited to have the Cleveland Browns owner (laughs) by them. Although, to be fair, the Browns have shown some promise this season with Baker Mayfield. But no, listen, I agree with everything you said. I agree with the mayor of Austin who said this is a win-win because Columbus get to keep their team, and Austin are going to get an MLS franchise without that stink of having quote-unquote stolen another city's team. So. Uh, I think it's a win-win for everybody involved. Let
0: me also just address, because I know in the time since this has happened, and and, and as you've seen, people screaming, and yelling at me, and wanting me to, you know, eat crow and eat. Excrement and eat uh, organs and all sorts of other stuff. In terms of what they're asking me to eat, there was a we had talked a couple of weeks ago when i done my State of the Union about me putting out there that uh, Anthony Precourt should buy Columbus a USL team, spend the seven million dollars for an expansion team and stuff like that. Uh, both of these can certainly still happen, but look if you're gonna if you're gonna have the opportunity to keep an MLS team or to have an MLS team, how we phrase that I don't know. As I said, going forward is going to is going to be fine. In no way was did I ever say that I don't want a team in Columbus but as I was very, very clear I also wanted to live up to the contractual obligation uh, that I would want anybody to live up to if that was uh, the case. Now keep in mind this also doesn't happen with a good legal maneuver because they were waiting for that judgment to come from the courts in Ohio. That is obviously I I suppose that will will go away but I'm not sure that this story is over. I, I do believe that Columbus will have a team. That's a wonderful thing but how this all gets sorted out, especially when you mentioned Austin, when Austin does start playing or how they start playing, how soon—and uh, and Anthony Precourt's involvement in that Austin team, that's going to be really interesting to, because immediately the—well, I guess it would be the Columbus crew in its current form, but acting as the Austin team— put out a press release and in no uncertain terms said, we are going to Austin. Now, they didn't say exactly when this is going to happen, but it was relative to that stadium situation that they have there. But it's going to be fun to see what the Austin team looks like. I can't wait for an Austin-Columbus matchup, and I also can't wait for that interstate matchup and that rivalry in Ohio with Austin and Cincinnati.
1: I was going to say, a lot of people are skeptical Uh, about this. Columbus and Cincinnati, excuse me. Yeah, Columbus, Cincinnati. A lot of people are skeptical about this, uh, but MLS has said they want to stop at twenty-eight. Austin yeah, right. would take it to 27. You have 23 now. Uh, Cincinnati next year, which, as you mentioned, is going to be a cool rivalry with Columbus. Then Nashville and Miami the year after that, and then Austin in 2021, presumably. That would leave only one slot left for the Detroit, Sacramento, St. Louis, Las Vegas to fight over. So you don't buy that 28. You think no, they're this going,
0: is this is being positioned as a musical chairs, uh, except that there are chairs being put in <laughs> at, at every interval, uh, and there will be more and more chairs if people want to pay the what what now is going to end up getting into the 200 million dollar range for an expansion team and not just because as I said not just out of the goodness of their heart they recognize that this is a asset that appreciates this league continues to grow the sport continues to grow the international aspect of it appeals to a lot of business people and business groups that want a global presence and soccer is a nice way to get into it all of those that that's not going to change so i don't think that this is a problem for teams that have the money, and want to get into MLS.
1: But you're okay with that? You're not worried yeah. about diluting the quality? Uh, I mean, is there a it's, number it's, that you think they should stop
0: at that you think is the right number? No, because I think that at some point, you can find a way to incorporate an intra-MLS promotional relegation type of situation. And I know we're getting a little off the the, the Columbus topic, but this all plays into it, because... In order for this to happen, somebody has to come in. Now, what this group is going to pay is going to be really interesting. When we get those numbers as to how much this, if we're calling it an expansion team in Columbus, how much is it going to go? Because we know each and every time the expansion fee has continued to, to to raise and raise and raise. Now, are these extenuating circumstances? And is there a deal done in order to massage everybody that's involved in what we know has been a very Dicey and oftentimes, as I said, sad and ugly situation. And by the way, one that I don't think MLS owners, even though they allowed this to happen, I'm I I would bet that MLS owners were not are not happy with the way that this has all gone down with their colleague and fellow owner Anthony Precourt. But I think they do recognize that they don't want to come in and stop something because they don't want somebody else stopping them from doing things that they can do. But they are a collective, and they well. I don't know specifically, but I would assume that many of them are not happy with Anthony Precourt right now. But if Austin gets off the ground and is going great guns, they will be just fine.
1: Last comment from me. It's interesting that in the midst of sorting all this out, Columbus is gonna have to hire a new coach because we all think that their current manager is gonna be the next U.S. national team boss. So
0: and and the, the thinking has been at times that they were holding off until the end of the season just because of all the consternation and all the problems that were that were going on relative to this potential move. So maybe this you know once again softens the blow if Greg Berhalter and maybe maybe it happens earlier. I talked to Ernie Stewart when we were in Florida. All off the record type of stuff uh, he 's off and doing and doing his job he, they, they are still you know they 're not going to give you a specific date, but they are hoping to have at least someone identified, whether that 's publicly or not by November first and it would surprise me if it goes if it goes into the new year and and look I, we, we I, I ranted about it during the game. I think it has gotten to a ridiculous point. I understand to a certain extent why they took the time and the climate surrounding it. But if it means that Columbus gets to stay for the Columbus crew faithful, but they lose Greg Burhalter in the process, that's a, a small price to pay because coaches will come and go, players will come and go, but the club is what you hope is going to remain. And that's what's being celebrated. That's what was championed. And once again, I guess I, I will end this by just reiterating the fact that whether I said this or said that or agreed or dis, uh, disagreed, ultimately— is, is irrelevant. The people that mattered, those people that it was their team, they came together for something they believed in. And they fought and they had faith from the moment uh, that the bad news uh, came out and the, or the potential was there. They organized. They were, as I said, for the most part, respectful and honorable in the way that they did it. And ultimately, uh, they won, and they should take great pride, and they should be able to tell their family and their friends for years to come what they did. And they should be celebrated going forward because they've done a wonderful thing, if this all ends out the way that we think it is. And hopefully next year, we are watching Columbus play in Columbus, where it started so many years ago at the beginning of MLS. And we put this behind us, but we also use it as a even a lesson or a teaching tool, but also point to it as, while it was sad, ultimately, it was um, the triumph of of passion, spirit, and all the good things that we talk about when we talk about sports in this game. Anything else, Mossy? Nope. All right, moving on. Mossy Makes the Case. Yes, it's time for Mossy Makes the Case, that time in the pod where uh, David Mossy talks to us about something that is bothering him or just something he wants to get off his chest. What are you talking about this week in your Mossy Makes the Case segment?
1: My case is that it's never been tougher to hire a national team coach, and if you have a good one, you should hold on to him. A lot's been made, rightly so, of the U.S.'s coaching vacancy, which is going on a year. Interestingly enough, the last two matches the U.S. has played, the other country didn't have a coach either. Mexico are still searching for a replacement for Juan Carlos Osorio, and Colombia made a mess of their situation. They took too long after the World Cup to sort out Jose Peckerman's future ended up not agreeing on a new contract. So he's gone. A lot of people think Osorio would have been the logical replacement there, but he got tired of waiting. So he took the Paraguay job and Colombia are now scrambling. I've heard everybody from Dunga to our Fox Sports colleague Gus Hiddink mention this possibilities. Ooh. We're taping this on a Monday. Tomorrow, Brazil play Argentina in a friendly. Argentina don't have a coach. Lionel Scaloni is serving on an interim basis. It's unclear which direction they're going to go. All this, I think, reflects the fact that it's tough to find the right national team coach. I'm not sure those jobs are that appealing. Uh, You go months out of the year without coaching a game. You're judged on a few scattered results every two years or every four years. And a lot of the top coaches are shying away. It's not that Argentina don't have good managers. They have some of the best managers in the world in Diego Simeone, Mauricio Pochettino. But good luck convincing one of those guys to take that job. Italy have some of the best managers in the world in Carlo Ancelotti, Antonio Conte, Massimo Alegre. And last cycle, they got stuck with Gian Piero Ventura, who was completely in over his head, and they missed the World Cup as a result. Uh, so listen, every situation is different. Uh, sometimes you have to make a change. I'm not suggesting that Argentina should have held on to Sampaoli. He was a disaster. But I think the general lesson here, if there is one, is that if you have a pretty good coach in place and he wants to stay on, boy, when in doubt, I would err on the side of keeping him because it's not that easy to find a replacement.
0: Interesting. So this would be my, my rebuttal to that. The way that you are framing it, uh, you, you seem to, well, at least the way you're framing it, like I said, is is that this is a new occurrence, that this is something unique. But the national team coach, or being a national team coach, has always been a very different proposition and a very different way of coaching for the reasons that you stated. So this is not anything new, that there are multiple teams now and multiple big teams that don't have coaches. I- I'm not sure this necessarily reflects some, some sea change or any type of new way of thinking about the position, because it's always been that way. Y- you mentioned the fact that you know if you are a coach, there are, there are coaches out there that live for the coaching, in that they live for the day in and day out. They wouldn't look at it as a grind, but the grind of getting up there and being with players and seeing that slow progression—that's where, that's where their fire is. And when they don't have that, as you mentioned from a national team coach, where not only is it just a few days, but you you can't you can't run a team in those days in the same way that you would a training for a uh, for a regular team. And it takes a very special type of coach. And I think it takes an even more special type of coach to be able to do both because it, it's a change in mindset. It's a change in approach. And so they are, they are valuable. I will agree with you that if you do have someone that you have recognized, it fits that person. He, he or she is good at doing that. You should think twice before getting rid of them because it is harder. And there's plenty of people. The grass is always greener. They, I'm sure that there are coaches that say, "Hey, it wouldn't be that bad to kind of have some time where I can de- decompress and I can breathe and I'm not on that cycle of day in and day out." But careful what you wish for because a lot of times what they find is that they are they are bored or they can't do the same things, and so it gets very frustrating very very quickly. And then, as you mentioned, from a pressure standpoint. It is about, it's few and far between the moments that you are judged on as opposed to a a club coach where each week you have the opportunity to make up for previous mistakes. Sometimes you're talking about months where you're living off of that two games or one game uh, ultimately. So my, my point is, do you think that there's anything in the modern game that is affecting this attitude that you seem to think that coaches have with regards to coaching national teams?
1: Yeah, you might be right that it's always been this way. It just struck me right now that there seem to be a lot of big openings in countries that are sort of struggling to, to find an ideal replacement. You know, it's funny, uh, I mentioned Simeone, his son, Giovanni Simeone, is a very good young striker for Fiorentina, who's now getting his first call-ups to the Argentinian national team. And he's been asked, you know, why don't you try to talk your dad into taking the job? And he said, I've tried, but he always says that it's not the right time. And there does seem to be this mindset that among the top coaches that a national team job is something you do later in your career after you've accomplished everything you want wanted to accomplish at club level. Now, you you really think there is a big difference there because, I don't know, I've always wondered if that's overrated. I mean, uh, you look at recent uh, World Cup winning coaches, you know, Lippi won it with Italy in 2006, great success at club level with Juventus, won the Champions League. Del Bosque won it with Spain in 2010, great success at club level, multiple Champions League titles with Real Madrid. Even Didier Deschamps was a very good club coach, took Monaco to the Champions League final, won Ligue 1 with Marseille. So, I don't know that it's as much apples and oranges as people think. Do you think if you plugged a Pep, a Klopp, a Morrigo, that they, they might struggle or, or their, their qualities as a coach would translate? You, you won't know
0: until you see it. And I would argue that the people that you're pointing out are great coaches because of their ability to translate what they do to both settings and those both unique settings. When you mentioned that it might not be as, as appealing, let's bring it over to the U.S. men's national team right now. Uh, when it comes to potential we mentioned in the uh, opening segment about, about Greg Berhalter. I would argue, because Greg Berhalter right now has been talked about uh, as a potential uh, new Los Angeles Galaxy coach, which is a plum type of position, not just for a domestic coach, but anybody around the world to come to Los Angeles to coach the Galaxy. I think they're going to get a lot of resumes. However, in this particular moment, I think, maybe more so than the other teams that you mentioned, I think, talk about a plumb position, coming in to coach this U.S. team that didn't qualify that last cycle. So you already have a, a low bar when it comes to what they did in the previous cycle. Secondly, if you do well, qualify the team and then do relatively well, get out of the group, uh, provide some hope, there's a really good chance that people will take your advice. There will be a recognition that you have somebody who is building something, somebody that is successful. And if it's Greg Burhalter, continue on. And why is that important? Because 2026, that talk about plum. That is ultimately when you want to be the coach of the U.S. men's national team because that group that we are seeing matriculate right now will all be in their prime. You're going to have plenty of talent, but it's also going to be, obviously, in the United States, Mexico, and Canada. And it can change your life forever. So I, I look at it from a Greg Berhalter perspective, and maybe it's unique, is that this is really, really appealing. and And when you put it up against the... LA LA Galaxy. Now, Greg Berhalter may say, you know what? Not only do I like it, but I need that day in and day out. And I know from a national team perspective, I'm not going to get it. I just think if he is offered the job, it's going to be really hard to pass up because of the unique aspect and the timing of it.
1: Let me ask you this. I'm not a fan of foreign coaches. I've never understood why coaching a national team, it's not the same rule as playing for a national team. I think you ought to have to be a citizen Ooh, of that country. But the rules are what they are. So you can hire anybody you want. This has been a topic on Twitter. What do you think of Ernie Stewart making it a requirement that you have to speak English? Well, is that like lessening the, the talent pool, eliminating like the Tata Martinos of the world? Are you okay with that, that being a requirement to coach yeah, this, the US?
0: Uh, uh, oftentimes, you will hear players and coaches and people in soccer in general say, well, we speak the international language, the international language of football, soccer. No that that does <laughs> that does not work. Y- yes there are there are basics that everybody understands when it comes to the game but especially once again in the in the international uh, arena where you have such a short period of time, you can't afford to not be able to communicate. So I, I have absolutely no problem as a matter of fact, I think it's a no-brainer considering you are coaching a team that while we are incredibly diverse in terms of our languages that we speak, ultimately, most of the players that you get are going to speak English. And you need to be able to communicate. Uh, Now, look, I've had coaches like Bora Milotinovic that spoke five languages, did not speak English very well, but he had that team for two years, guys in residency camp, seeing them day in and day out. And and it's problematic. It takes longer to do things. So I, I don't have any problem. I am interested in your idea of making it just like just like anything else, if you you have to have an American passport, and obviously not have coached, would you say you can't have coached anywhere? Uh, well, you couldn't have coached anywhere else, but just you just would hire a coach. That is eligible for that team. Exactly. Yeah, I'm in favor of that. That would that would be interesting.
1: Now, on the topic of holding on to managers, I know a lot of people were surprised that uh, Brazil, after getting knocked out in the quarterfinals, there didn't seem to be much debate about Chichí's future. It was sort of a given that he was going to stay on, and they shouldn't have been that surprised because not only is he a good coach, but there were no other alternatives. There was no other coach that anybody in Brazil was excited about, and I think Gareth Southgate benefited from that too. Look, I think he did such a good job that it was a no-brainer to keep him. But even if he had done a passable job if England had gone out in the round of 16 which by the way if James Rodriguez was fit I think might have happened I still think they would have kept Southgate because what's the alternative you know I think you have wow, to this have this is
0: this is this is such a backhanded compliment
1: <laughs> <laughs> now, now now I think you just patted England on the head <laughs> Now now one coach that that Seemingly, is allowed to stay on as long as he wants, but some people are wondering if maybe it's been too long, is Yogi Love, because Germany crashed out in the group stage of the World Cup, off to a Struggling terrible start there, in this yeah. cycle. They got thumped by the Netherlands. This is his fourth cycle. Is that too much? I mean, is, is there a point where it's... I,
0: I, I am not a proponent of multiple cycles, because I do think that it gets stale, it gets old, uh, and you churn generations, you churn, you churn players, where once it gets stale, it can be really, really detrimental. So for Yogi, I mean, look, I think there, I think there's a recognition from the German Federation that they have somebody who not only is good, but in particular is good in this capacity. You know, because Yogi Love could go to I don't know whatever team. If he if he didn't want to coach the German national team, he is not going to be wanting in terms of job opportunities. He's going to have plenty of opportunities.
1: I don't know. That guy has had a fascinating career. I mean, he he. Hasn't coached at club level since 2004, Austria-Vienna. His, he's a specialist. His, yeah, his great success came—I say great success. He was did a good job with Stuttgart in the 90s. He got to a cup-winner's cup final, lost to Chelsea. But, boy, he's been out of the club game for a while. Do you think if he became available now, it's a given that he would get a plum club job? Yes. Or there oh, wouldn't be concern that, boy, this guy hasn't no. coached the club? And, no, I don't Yeah, you know, so. it's funny. I've asked people that question, and they give the same answer you give. So maybe I'm overthinking it. I, but. And
0: I think— much of it has to do with the fact that just everybody is believes that he's a good coach, right? But you know, I, I understand where you're coming from. The other thing is name recognition. I mean, this this is a guy that is known all over the world, and that's important for these for these. Uh, we're we're going to talk a little bit about Manchester United later on in the yeah. pod, but name recognition and the sexiness out there, that that has value, especially to big teams.
1: It's funny. We talk about love staying on too long. Oscar Tabata is, is going to stay on another cycle with Uruguay. Th- that man is in his 70s. He's had all sorts of health problems. He can't even stand up straight on the bench. And yet, A, he's such a good coach, and B, I don't think they have anybody else they think would do as good a job. So... They're going to keep them on. They're going to ride the Oscar Tabata's train as long as it... <laughs> uh,
0: so, well, it's yeah, working it's, for them. It's, yeah. it's working for them. Anything else, Masi? Uh No, that's it. All right, wonderful. Well, we'll see uh, for all of those different coaching uh, vacancies if they are filled, and more importantly, if they are filled anytime soon, and in particular uh, for the U.S. team, if and when that happens, because it cannot come too soon as far as I'm concerned. And we're recording this in a week where uh, the U.S. is going to play uh, another game Against Peru. And it's just hard to watch the US men's team now without the coach ultimately that is going to be in charge of this going forward. So we'll see if that changes. All right, moving on. Ask Alexi. All right, it's time for Ask Alexi, the hashtag Ask Alexi segment where we respond to your questions and your comments and concerns out there that you've put to us over social media, uh, be it on Twitter, on Facebook, uh, during the Periscopes that I do, whatever. Use that Ask Alexi hashtag, and uh, who knows, at some point, your question, your comment, your concern may be read on air in the way that Masi is going to do that right now for a lucky few. All right, what do they want to know?
1: All right, first one is very interesting. At Matthew J. Pluck, based on the current U.S. men's national team, what UEFA Nations League A, B, C, or D would they belong in, and what groups could they win?
0: Well, I suppose for our for our listeners out there, you're going to have to at least give them an idea of what we're talking about. Not everybody knows what we're talking about here uh, in terms of what the teams are and what is going on.
1: All right. So this is a new competition that UEFA created, which is going on right now. They've taken all the different European nations, and divided them into four different tiers, League A, B, C, and D. And then they've divided them into different groups within those tiers. And so they compete. League A competes to actually win the UEFA Nations League. The other leagues are fighting for promotion relegation. You can right. move up and down. And so the uh, Matthew here is asking, where would the U.S. slot in? So just to give people an idea, League A, and this was all based on like- uh, Coefficient. Coefficient, say, yeah. Uh, League A is- France, Netherlands, and Germany are in a group. Belgium, Switzerland, Iceland, different group. Portugal, Italy, Poland, and then Spain, England, Croatia. I would argue, Alexi, if you were ranking national teams in the world right now, you'd have to put every single one of those countries above the U.S. And I think for the U.S. to win any one of these groups would be a major surprise. So uh, I wouldn't. So you're ruling
0: out League A for the U.S. team. Uh, Keep in mind that just from and I know. Take it for what it's worth. But for the FIFA rankings right now, the U.S. is at 22 in the okay. world. Uh, so I would uh, agree, and I think I know where you're going with this, that I—well, I don't know. I would put them in League B. Uh, some of the people in League B are Austria, Wales, Slovakia, Ukraine, Republic of Ireland, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Northern Ireland, Denmark, Czech. Turkey, Russia, Sweden, those types of teams right now. Would that be appropriate? Or do you think that they're... I'm not saying they're going in D. I think they're much better than D. Or would you, would you think that they should go to C?
1: No, I, I think they slot in nicely in uh, League B. I think B. there's a lot of countries there that are more or less the same level that you could argue the U.S. is better than. And, and groups that maybe they wouldn't be favored to win, but it wouldn't be that big of a surprise if they won. The groups there are Ukraine, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Russia, Turkey, Sweden... Which does include two World Cup quarterfinalists yeah. yeah. there Bosnia, Herzegovina, Austria, Northern Ireland. And then uh, Denmark, Wales, Republic of Ireland. So I think right. the U.S. could certainly acquit themselves fine in League B, and uh, I think that's where they would. I think slot they would. But
0: in. the way he framed the question, though, based on the current U.S. men's national, League, this is a work in progress, and maybe one the likes of which we haven't seen for a long time. It would. So I would put them in B. But given the current team, with the lack of experience, with the incredible youth that, that is good, but also means they're going to make mistakes. Um, it would it would not be it would be a slog. They would be in a let's say a relegation battle. I think I would put them in there uh, for League B right now. So that's that's where I think uh, Matthew uh, the U.S. would uh, would show up in this type of context with the current team right now. All right, what else?
1: At Justin says this. Why do I see so many people ranking Rooney second behind Martinez and ahead of Bradley Wright Phillips for MVP? These people are insane, right? <laughs> So basically, MLS MVP, explain your criteria. Which way are you going?
0: With yeah, that? so last week I put out my criteria. I have done this for many, many years. My good friend, Paul Carr, has helped me figure this all out. I used to work with him uh, back at ESPN. Uh, and he's and he's a wonderful, uh, just uh, another savant like you when it comes to uh, the sport. You should really follow him on Twitter. And uh, just a great person to know and to uh, have been a colleague with. So my MVP... MLS does not give us criteria, which means that I get to make up my own criteria. All right, these are, this is my criteria in picking the MVP for Major League Soccer's regular season. Uh, number one, it's all about the goal scorers. Scoring a goal is the only way to win a game, uh, and so there's nobody more valuable than those that do it. Number two, it's not how many goals you score, but how many different games you score in, because I value a player who is consistently scoring in more games, even if his season total might not give him the golden boot. I always tell the story of if Carlos Ruiz who I played with on the Galaxy many, many years ago, he scored so many different games, scored a lot of goals, but he scored in so many different games that I knew when I walked on the field that for all intents and purposes... We're already up one nothing For a defender, do you realize how valuable that is to know that if I just keep a clean sheet here, chances are we are going to win. Number three, I don't count penalties. Uh, they don't hold the same value to me as other goals, and I think penalties should actually be a separate statistical column because they warp perception, and I think they skew the assessment that you have of a player. And then four, in a league where... Uh, half the teams make the playoffs. You got to make the playoffs if you're going to be my MVP. Uh, at the very least, a league MVP should be on a playoff team. Now, what people will do over the years when I've put this out and they'll, they'll scream and yell and why can't a goalkeeper be it, And why can't a defender? Look, go make your own criteria. These are my criteria. And so when I put this this into my formula here right now so far, it, it spits out that Joseph Martinez, who I think would win MVP anyway, has scored in the most different games uh, without the penalty, and certainly his team is going to make the playoffs. So my MVP right now, unless something ridiculous happens, uh, Bradley Wright Phillips is second a couple of games away, is going to be Joseph Martinez, and that's why I picked that. And you can have your own criteria, and you can figure it out.
1: Next question, at Packer Nish, when Mourinho is finally let go, who should be the next coach to replace him?
0: So uh, has has Zidane made it pretty clear either through oh. himself or through his agent that this is not going to happen? Yeah, uh, so I, I have a lot of thoughts on
1: this but uh, go ahead, ask go you ahead. first. No no, I mean, no, 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 no. Zidane is the betting favorite. You've talked about how the fact that he's only done it in one place, Real Madrid, mm-hmm. Uh, would that be enough of a reason for you perhaps going going a different direction or he's such a sexy choice that if you were running Manchester United, it's hard to turn
0: down? If he wants to do it? Yeah. Oh, my God. As as you mentioned, I mentioned this (laughs) in the podcast
1: last week. His, His agent gave an interview in which he intimated that maybe he's not interested in going to the Premier League but still he's up there as nobody's buying it apparently because he's still the betting favorite everywhere you look. So let's say he wanted to come and let's say, by the way, that this change occurs next summer. So you eliminate the variable of like somebody not wanting to take over midseason. And if Zidane is available, wants to come, is that an absolute no brainer?
0: Run, don't walk to pick him up at the airport or, (laughs) or drive him to the airport and then pick him up on the other side. Yeah, that's because I think it's that perfect combination. And yes, it's not that the jury's out, but. But he he has, he has a limited experience when it comes to coaching other teams. We, we get that. But what he did, I think that not only does he bring undoubtedly a, a mind that can be beneficial, but as I said, he is a very sexy name. And that type of hire is almost exactly what Manchester United needs. Now, there are others that say, no, that's not what they need. They need to go... I don't know, domestic, or they need to go much more low-key because Jose is so big and so arrogant and so bold and so in-your-face that maybe they want to dial it back or go completely different. Keep in mind that Zinedine Zidane is also very notorious for not giving a lot of way, being very, very calm and cool in his demeanor and the way that he goes uh, goes about things. But I, I don't, I don't see—you're doing a disservice, I think, if you do not sign him if he is available and wants to come.
1: One scenario I think is interesting is perhaps after the season, Massimo Allegri decides it's try- time to try something different. He goes to Manchester United, and Zidane replaces him at Juventus. I could see that. But let- I I, I got to get this in. Go, um, go, One guy that's popping up on these lists of betting favorites, fourth or fifth, it's not a sexy choice, but I'll tell you what— they could do a lot worse than Leonardo Jardine, who got fired by Monaco yep. last week, replaced by Terry Henry. I know everybody's excited about Henry getting that job, and I am too, especially with Patrick Vieira being at Nice. It's going to be neat when those two clubs square off. But spare a thought for Jardine. Uh, listen, they, they've had an awful start. They're 18th in Ligue 1, only one win in nine games. They've lost both Champions League matches. They got thumped by PSG in the Super Cup. So you get off to that kind of start. Maybe you do need to make a change, but that guy is a terrific coach. He did an amazing job. The previous four seasons, considering the circumstance. Remember, he took over the summer of 2014. Monaco were bought by this Russian oligarch who initially was going to spend big and try to turn him into like a PSG, a Man City. And then he took over right as the guy decided to reverse course and become a selling club. And so the list of players they've sold since he's been there is astonishing. Everybody from James Rodriguez to Anthony Martial to Yannick Carrasco, Jeffrey Condogbia, and then more recently Fabinho, Bacayoko, Bernardo Silva, Thomas Lamar, uh, Benjamin Mendy, Kylian Mbappe. And yet he's kept them competitive. They got to the—he's a chameleon. They got—in 2015, they got to the quarterfinals of the Champions League with this very ultra-defensive team. And then two years later, they got to the semifinals with a very attack-minded, high-scoring team. So he can adapt to whatever talent you give him. He won a league on title over PSG. They finished, what was it, third, third, first, and second in his four seasons prior to this one. So, wow. listen, it, it, it it's not his fault at all what's happened this season.
0: <laughs> Hold it, it, on. Are, and, you, are you his agent or something? What's I going love on? I this guy. i of jardine. him. What is I, going on here? I
1: thought he would have been an ideal replacement for Wenger at Arsenal. And I'll tell you, I, Manchester United could do a lot worse than this guy I think he's a terrific manager and some smart club is going to snap him up
0: I've never seen you get this animated I about anyb- big, anybody anybody before big amazing all yep. right well we'll see if they take your advice but you said the, the the odds-on favorite when it comes to betting because obviously this is England and they sometimes know a whole lot more <laughs> than than others is still is it correct all right well we'll see if that happens anything else there that from, is it uh, ask Alexi all right uh as always use that hashtag ask, ask uh how does it ask Alexi Excuse me. Use that hashtag on Twitter, on Facebook, uh, on Periscope, all the different forms out there. If you see us walking down the street, just hashtag it, Ask Alexi, and uh, ask that question or throw us that comment. Uh, and as always, we will use uh, a few of you uh, on each and every podcast. And thank you for the continued Ask Alexi questions uh, that we have. All right, moving on. The Back Three. All right, we're coming down the back stretch. We're up to the Back Three, of the biggest stories, games, moments. Give us our Back Three for this week, Mossy.
1: All right, we're going to start with the U.S. women's national team, which over the weekend qualified for next summer's World Cup. First, let me get a quick thought from you on that.
0: If you want a job done right, you get women to do it. And that is what happened over the, uh, over the weekend. Uh, it was wonderful to see... Is it cause for celebration and ticker tape parades? No, this is what is expected. But this U.S. women's national team right now, as we know, is now qualified to go to France to defend their World Cup. I think that this is as good a team as I have ever seen from a U.S. perspective. And not just the starting eleven, but the depth that they have, the way that they are playing, the multiple ways that they are able to attack. Is playing against CONCACAF competition... Uh, ultimately what is going to win them the World Cup? No. And they steamrolled everybody. But I was really impressed by the attitude and the way that they went about it, because it is difficult for Jill Ellis. Because we all know that it's hard to get things out of games where the opposition at times is just so poor. I would argue that the u s was just so good that it made opposition that even you are even though you know you are better than, and even though the chances are you 're going to beat them, it made them appear that much poorer. I am incredibly bullish about this team going forward, and whether it 's the usual suspects of Alex Morgan or Megan Rapino or Tobin Heath up t- up top who are all three I think in the, in the form of their lives playing really, really good soccer, whether it 's the additions of Players like Rose Lavelle, uh, the additions of Lindsey Horan, who I think is just phenomenal. And she, she is going to be huge in that midfield, whether, whether it's not necessarily an addition, but it is an addition in terms of position. Julie Ertz coming into that midfield. And then just a solid defense. I'm still concerned from a goalkeeping standpoint, and it's, this is where it really gets hard because Alyssa uh, not not challenged at all. Barely any shots. The defense in and of itself also wasn't challenged. It'll be interesting to see this week when they take on Canada in the final We're recording this before that game happens, because at least that will be a game where they're going to be pushed. I still think they have too much for Canada and they will still win. But right now, congratulations for doing what is expected of you. And they had a job to do, and they got the job done. It was interesting because our good friend, Grant Wall, who makes another appearance on the, uh, on the podcast uh, during the game here, was taking uh, members of the media to task who compared and made reference to the men's team while broadcasting a women's game. I would certainly fall into that category. Uh, I, I disagree with Grant because uh, he said that if you do that, then you should be required to also mention it when you're talking about the men's game. Uh, I have said many, many times before that the if you go in and watch women's soccer and you do a compare and contrast with men's soccer, you're not going to enjoy it as much in that you can go and say, well, that that goal that went in, that shot that went over the goalkeeper's head, that would never happen in the men's game. Yeah, you're, you're, you're going to have less enjoyment of the game if you do that. And I learned long ago not to do that. However, I do think that it's valid when we are comparing results and success. And in this case, when we are comparing failure, epic failure, failure that was historic for the men's team, it it has informed everything about soccer. And I think it is fair to talk about what the men did because people that were involved in soccer talked about it and people that weren't involved in soccer. I'm not comparing... Whether they're faster or stronger, whether the ball goes over the net. I'm comparing the fact that a soccer team that represented the United States went out there and you know what, the bed, as opposed to another soccer team that just happens to be made up by women who went out there and were professional and got the job done and didn't have any excuses. And not only that, put their foot on the pedal and never let it off. They went for the jugular, all the different phrases. Uh, They put their foot on the neck and they didn't let any of those teams up for air. And it's not their responsibility, nor should they ever apologize for playing inferior opposition. That's whatever, Jamaica or whoever team you want to put out there that they beat up on. That's their responsibility or CONCACAF's responsibility. U.S. can only play what's in front of them. And they went out there and they got the job done. And that's what you ask for U.S. teams, whether they are populated by men or whether they are populated by women. This is ultimately soccer. And yes, it's a different way of playing soccer at times. But ultimately, a soccer game, like any sport, is about winning. And the U.S. women, they are about winning. U.S. men, not so much right now. Hopefully that changes.
1: Yeah, Grant's turned into Gloria Steinem. He's he's quite the feminist. Like every other tweet is defending women's soccer, I got to say, I got to go back and watch the tape of that 2010 game that Mexico beat the U.S. in qualifying because I've covered two of these tournaments now and the U.S. is so much better than everybody else not named Canada and CONCACAF that it seems hard to believe they could have lost the game. I don't know what happened that day, but I'm ready to call that the biggest upset in sports history. I think Virginia Chaminade has been... uh, (laughs) I mean, (laughs) because I... I Well, they
0: they were having none of that, uh, this qualifying process. Uh, Uh, And they're going to France, which makes us certainly at Fox happy because, as you know, next summer... Uh, we will be broadcasting the Women's World Cup. It's going to be so much fun. And we will also be broadcasting the Gold Cup. So we will have both the men's team and the women's team playing. Uh, Regardless of what Grant says, uh, I will probably continue to compare and contrast at times and to evoke the men's team. And maybe Grant will be happy because when I'm talking about the men, I will probably talk about the women too. (laughs) Now, staying with the U.S. women,
1: uh, you recently put out a list of the top 10 greatest U.S. men's outfield players that got a lot of attention. So Alex Dowd very much wants you to do a similar list for the women, which I know you've put together for today, so let's hear it. The top 10 greatest uh, U.S. women's players of all time, once again, excluding goalkeepers? No
0: goalkeepers because they don't deserve to be in, uh, in a top 10 list, and uh, you know they are necessary evil, and I know there's goalkeepers out there. Although I will say this, if, we, if it did involve goalkeepers, Hope Solo would loom large, and maybe I'll do a goalkeeper uh, one uh, in the future, uh, and we'll see where, or maybe I will, inc- I will throw Hope Solo in there. Okay, so ultimately when it comes down to my top 10, and we will put this out on social media so you'll get this in a visual form too, Number 10, Becky Sauberman, I think just is gets better and better and better. I think she is crucial to the success of the team. Oftentimes, it's not going to be as visible as others, as is the case. That's your lot when you are a center back. Uh, I think she is phenomenal, so I'm putting her at number 10. Uh, Tiffany Milbritt at number 9. Joy Fawcett at number 8. Christy, uh, Christy Rampone, who I had the pleasure of working with over the weekend, uh, she did some TV for us. Just a, a you know years and years of success and defending the crest and defending the team and defending on the field. Uh, Carly Lloyd coming in at six. Christine Lilly, come, oh, sorry, Carly Lloyd coming in at seven. Excuse me, Carly Lloyd, who. Interestingly enough, and we'll talk more about this as we get closer to next summer, it's potentially uh, you're looking at a situation with the U.S. women's team where Carly Lloyd is not a starter. Uh, It will be a big story, and we'll see how she handles that adjustment. But when it comes to top 10 of all time of field players, Carly Lloyd uh, is in there. Okay, number five, Christine Lilly. Number four, Julie Foudy. Number three, Abby Wambach. Number two, Michelle Akers and, number one, Mia Hamm. And I know there's a lot of different people that, that disagree, and a lot of people have Michelle Akers at one and Mia Hamm at two and or or Abby in that three. I happen to think uh, that it's Mia Hamm. And I will readily admit that there are selections on this list because, once again, I get to make the criteria. I get I, I, I get to decide what my best is. You can no more tell me what a best player is or a best t- team is, then you can tell me what a best wine is or a best looking person is, or uh, a best song is, or best piece of art. So I get to choose, and it is subjective. But I will let you know that your footprint, your impact, your influence, both as a player, and I will readily admit that even after you stop playing, I incorporate that in. Uh, maybe that's not fair, and you don't certainly don't have to do that, but Mia Hamm is iconic. If you're p- having a pickup game today, there might be those that say, I would pick Michelle Akers over Mia Hamm uh, any day of the week. But Mia Hamm, what she did, not just on the field, but who she became, reluctantly remember, because she didn't want that attention, and, and she's a very private person, but ultimately she became bigger than life, and she transcended the sport, and she, as I said, became iconic. When you mentioned Mia Hamm, uh, you you were talking about not just a soccer player, but a female athlete uh, that represented all that was good on and off the field, and still does uh, for that matter. So that's why I have Mia Hammett at, at, at one. Certainly send us uh, what your list would be. We will put this out there this week so you can check it and tell me how right or how wrong I am. All right, Masi, so you know that counting is not my strongest suit here, and I think I might have gotten my numbers mixed up here. When I have my list for the top 10 U.S. women's national team players of all time, excluding goalkeepers, Becky Sauber at 10, Tiffany Milbritt at 9, Joy Fawcett at eight, Christy Rampone at seven, Carly Lloyd at six, Christine Lilly at five, Julie Fowdy at four, Abby Wombeck at three, Michelle Akers at two, and Mia Hamm at one.
1: Okay, Uh, what else? If I was putting together a top 10 most annoying Alex Dowd qualities, his obsession with lists would be very high up there.
0: Hey, you know, uh, this is the business we're in. Lists, uh, they sell, they click.
1: All right. Shifting gears to the U.S. men, who uh, suffered a 4-2 defeat to Colombia last week in Tampa. They're in action. Again, we're taping this on a, on a Monday. They're in action tomorrow against Peru in yep. East Hartford, Connecticut. You were there in Tampa for the Colombia match. What were your overall impressions?
0: One, Colombia is a very, very good team. And as you mentioned, it is a real pity that James was not healthy this summer, because I do think that he is a game changer. And, and look, he scored a wonderful goal against the U.S., but... When your biggest stars continually step up and do what the crowd expects, that's, that's, that's money. That's magic. And, and it's not just him. They are a very, very good team, as I'm, I'm sure you can uh, attest to, number one. So that, that was great. From a U.S. men's national team perspective, this is still a work in progress. Again, it's difficult because they don't have a coach. Um, is it impossible? No. But I didn't necessarily learn a whole lot new. And someone that I respect and I like actually took me to task because at the end of the game, uh, Rob Stone turned to me and said, what did we learn? And I said, nothing. And maybe I was being a little flip and and maybe having to think about it a little bit more. Someone like Tim Weah. I think he had a good game and I think he came out of it better. Someone like Julian Green, who is it's funny to say this, but he's starting to grow on me. Uh, it's taken a while. We know how young he was when he was when he first got brought in uh and, and to the and to the World Cup, but he's starting to uh, starting starting to grow at me. But you know, for example, Bobby Wood scores a goal. I don't need to know about Bobby Wood. I know what Bobby Wood is, And that was why it was frustrating from my perspective that we didn't see someone like Josh Sargent that where I could learn something. I know what Michael Bradley is. Uh, I know what these players, what these players are and what they can do. So that's what was the frustration that you may have uh, you may have heard. Uh, but if there is stuff to take away, it's that this continues to be a work in progress. I think the consistency in the back line is good. We still need a left back. Anthony Robinson. If Anthony Robinson was not playing in Europe, and it was just was the exact same player, but was playing for I don't know um, Portland or or some, somewhere else, do you think that he would be called in? I don't think so. Now that's not that's not a knock on him, and that's how the world works. That's how this cachet of playing in Europe works. I get that, but I do think that we need to upgrade. But I also would just say this: giving players a run and letting them make mistakes is good at some point though you have to say look you're you're not getting any better I'm not sure that time is yet for Robinson but that is certainly a weak point right now going forward
1: yeah you mentioned Colombia from a Brazil perspective I'm very worried about that team for next summer's Copa America I watched them the other night like Mickey watching those Clubber Lang fights in the opening montage of Rocky Three. they are very talented we'll see who they bring in as a coach but I love when they have James and Quintero on the field at the same time to me they're just a joy to watch, those two guys. What else? Uh, so we'll end it on this MLS playoff update. The regular season is winding down. Uh, a lot of uh, fun races still. Uh, what do you have your eye on? What are you most excited about?
0: So, uh, Well, I think D.C. United is going to uh, be the talking point right now because they finally have gotten over that hump. I look at the standings right now. They are above the line. We we use this playoff line. Obviously, MLS does not have promotion relegation. We use that playoff line to delineate and to separate between failure and success, good and bad. Right or wrong, uh, fair or not, doesn't really matter. That's the line. And from a DC United perspective, having gone on this run, uh, having someone like Wayne Rooney be such a huge part, but we all know that it's also also and maybe more so Luciano Acosta, this is wonderful. And congratulations, at least initially here, for getting above that line. Uh, and they got, they got a real good chance right now. Now, Montreal's a point below them. Uh, But it's going to be a fight to the finish. It's going to make our broadcasting of the next couple of weeks of MLS that much more exciting. Uh, In the Western Conference, you also have uh, a race with RSL and the LA Galaxy, who, like DC United, are making this run at the end separated by uh, one point in that playoff line. But when this all shakes down, we talked earlier about the musical chairs. This is a case of musical chairs. And there are going to be some people here that think they have it made and think they are safe in that playoff zone. Uh, but when that music stops, then we're looking around for a chair. And it's going to be really fun in these next couple of weeks to see who those teams are. Uh, we will be broadcasting it myself and Rob Stone will be going and doing a whip around show, giving you all the different action on the uh, last weekend of the uh, of the regular season. And then as we uh, as we head into the playoffs, then we'll be on the road but we don't know where and we don't know actually who uh in terms of totality all of the, of the teams that are uh, going to be there so it's going to be fun to see as this plays out to the end this is what you want this is what you want at the end of the season you want players jockeying for position some of them obviously know they're going to be at the playoffs but they want to get buys or they want to get the best pay- uh, favorable uh, position that they can and then other w- other ones right now are all still in the mix and uh, that music is going to stop it's going to be fun to see Anything else? That is it. All right. So we come to the end of yet another show. And at the end of every show, I do my one big thing. And obviously, it has to be uh, about the wonderful news, the joyous news coming out of uh, Columbus. Fingers crossed. Uh, It's not a done deal yet, but as we talked about the way it looks right now, Columbus is going to stay. Columbus is an original team in Major League Soccer. Columbus has an incredible history when it comes to the game, uh, especially with the national team, but as we mentioned, also being one of the original teams back in 1996. The players can rejoice. The front office staff can rejoice. The fans obviously can rejoice, and certainly in particular, the Save the Crew group and this grassroots group that deserves a tremendous amount of attention and praise and thanks, not just internally from everybody in Columbus, but externally. And I just want to add my uh, thanks for everything that they did. They certainly, uh, as I said before, showed what is good about the game. They showed what is right about the game. Does it mean that people can't disagree in different aspects of it? No. <laughs> that's what we do, and that's certainly what I do. And I'm sure there's plenty of people out there screaming. I like that they're listening because I know because I know that they're listening. And if I get the opportunity to see you in person, please, let's have a conversation about uh, what's going on, what you may agree or disagree in terms of the way that I have positioned myself or the way that I have framed the situation over the last year. And it has been a long year. And ultimately, I think regardless of different uh, opinions that people have had over the year, at least I, I like to think that we all agreed that this was not good. This was not a good look for a league that I, I, I recognize I am biased when it comes to talking about Major League Soccer. I'm glad that we can, t- can continue on to have Columbus. And as I said, the ideal has been, uh, has been struck here where you got a very, very appealing market in Austin. You have an owner who obviously wants to be there. Uh, I just hope that the new ownership comes in, recognizes the responsibility, and gives the people not just what they want in Columbus, but given their performance over this last year, what they, maybe more so than any fan base, deserves. And that is a ownership that is committed. That is a team that is theirs, and in no way is being threatened to go anywhere else. So that they continue to build that wonderful community. They continue to give hope and ambition uh, and vision for the people that go to the games the families that go to the games, and in particular, the kids that watch this team on a week-in and week-out ba- uh, basis. Congratulations to, uh, to everybody. Hopefully, we can put this to rest and go about uh, discussing and, uh, and dealing with the things that uh, that are important, that are good, that are positive, because there's so many of those. All right, well done. Congratulations, uh, Crew Nation, and well done to the uh, Save the Crew, now Save the Crew movement. Mossy, thank you so much. Uh, Anything to add before we leave? That is it. All right. Thank you, everybody, for uh, tuning in. Uh, We will be back again next week with another episode of the State of the Union podcast. As always, hit us up on uh, Twitter, on Facebook, Periscope. We'll be doing those things. Use that Ask Alexi hashtag uh, and let us know what you think of the things that we said. Whether you agree or disagree, this is part of the deal we uh, we uh, you don't have to agree with it as a matter of fact it makes it that much more interesting when you don't and i can be convinced i can be spun uh not easily uh and ultimately i do uh, have a microphone as does mossy but we like to hear the different opinions that are out there when it comes to the things that we are talking about and the things that matter to us all right we'll see you next week size of the day.